Overwhelmed by fintech, I'm Matt Janiga. And I'm Reggie Young, and we're going to make it a piece of cake. Welcome to Fintech Layer Cake, a podcast where we slice big financial technology topics into bite-sized pieces for everyone to easily digest. Our goal is to make fintech a piece of cake for everyone. Fintech Layer Cake is powered by Lithic. The fastest and most flexible way to launch a card program. Welcome back to another episode of Fintech Layer Cake. We're super excited to have Drew Wade on as a guest today. Drew is the Chief Growth Officer of Phoenix and has really unique insights in the history of platform payments. We're very excited to chat with him. Drew, let's start by running through a quick tour of your career in payments. Cool. Yeah. And thanks for having me. I'm excited to do this. I like talking about payments and nerding out on compliance and stuff. So quick tour of my background in payments is I'm currently at a company called Phoenix, which is a payments technology company for platforms. I actually started my career in payments at a similar company called Balance that I co-founded in 2010. And in between, I've done a number of other things, including lead product partnerships for e-commerce and visual search at Pinterest. So that's kind of the highlights. There's a few other things I could get into, but those are the main things I've done around e-commerce or payments for most of my career. Oh yeah, we'll be uh, digging into some of those in more depth. First, we'd love to chat generally about platform payments. I think today, companies like Stripe and Phoenix can help customers with platform payments, but it might surprise a lot of listeners to hear that even 10 years ago, platform payments weren't really a thing. And companies in the space, companies like eBay's, Amazon, and Uber, they had to build everything in-house. Now, you've had a front row seat due to your time at Balanced. I also had some nice front row seats due to my time at Square and Stripe. We'd love to hear your perspective on how platform payments got started. How's that sound? Sounds good. Let's do it. Let's kick off with your time at Balance, which was a pioneer in the platform payments. How did Balance get started? Yeah, so we started the company Balance around 2010, 2011. So it was myself and my co-founders, Mattine and Mahmood. And it started off actually as a kind of Venmo-like competitor. So it was supposed to be a peer-to-peer app where you could send money instantly from your bank account to another. And one cool thing that we never... We ended up changing the business to focus more on building an API for platform payments. But... In between starting the company, which was first called PoundPay, and then pivoting to Balance, we actually created a lot of the technology in-house that Plaid ended up building on their own. So something like a login with Chase. So we would actually allow someone on their mobile phone to log into their bank account. And that's one of the things that allowed us to move money instantly for free. But we saw this opportunity behind the scenes for building infrastructure for a company like ourselves with our peer-to-peer app, and it just didn't exist. So this was 2010. Everyone told us to use PayPal. Stripe was barely, barely around. So we ended up just building it ourselves. So we ended up doing processing, escrow, and payouts for marketplaces and other platforms. And I think raised around $6 million from Y Combinator, Andreessen Horowitz, SV Angel, and a couple of prominent angels, including Brian Chesky, the CEO of Airbnb. One thing quickly to hop in here. I'd love to know what your first office was like. I know before my time, Stripe's first office was like a house in Palo Alto. And then you could yeah. just walk around normal neighborhood type of thing. What was your first office like? Yeah, it was a house in Palo Alto. So we had, I remember we had these sliding doors that would open up onto the patio or in the backyard. And that's where we would have a whiteboard, essentially all of the ideas. So it was just a, a house on William Street in, in Palo Alto. There's three of us living there with a giant dog. And that's where the first idea came up. That's hysterical. And was your dog's name Balanced Payments? No, probably not. <laughs> no, definitely not. But I did work at a company, Milo.com, where we had the name for the company and a dog mascot. And then we bought a dog or the CEO bought a dog that looked like the mascot and named it Milo. 
terrible people terrible reason to buy a dog people please don't follow that example but please go start start i mean he ended up he ended up treating the dog very well and had him for years but it was a funny reversal everyone thought the dog came first that is really funny all right reggie sorry i I know i hopped in there happy to turn it back over to you because you've got some great questions lined up no no important facts that we we want on record so i think everyone would think of starting a payments platform company as a no-brainer today given plaid and stripes valuations but what was it like pitching to investors with this idea before those companies were a sure thing yeah there's a few things that are definitely different now so one is everyone just assumed paypal could be used for everything and I don't know if you have looked at PayPal's APIs. Certainly in 2010, they were not great. But the idea of a developer-friendly experience for payments was not that well-known at the time. And it seems silly now because that's what everyone's moving into. Obviously, Stripe successfully popularized this idea. But at the time, we were one of the, I think, first to do that. One of our big things is we wanted to move money quickly. So I think our backgrounds being either low income or my co-founders being immigrants, we all had experiences in our personal lives where we've been really useful to get money, like, that day from something, say something you sold on Craigslist, right? So when we were doing the peer-to-peer app, that was one of our big value props was instant payments, instant fund transfer for free. And I remember Matty, my CEO, was showing this off to a few investors and they were like, cool. And we were like, no, we just move money from my bank account to your bank account, live demo. You have 20 bucks in your account. It was free. It's instant. And they're like, I could just wait for the ACH to go through two days. Like I have a million dollars in my bank account. Why do I need 20? And so... We started to realize that there was also not necessarily a lens on exactly how transformative financial services and digital payment tools would be to the majority of humans on the planet. And so that's one reason that we wanted to build more infrastructure so that other experiences could be built on top of that. But at the time, I don't think VCs really got that idea. And then the last one I'll mention is I think a lot of folks were used to seeing PayPal or Venmo, which had a lot of winner-take-all market dynamics. And when you're building infrastructure, that is not the case. And so as we were scaling, we would get that question a lot. At first it was PayPal, then it was Stripe. How could there possibly be space in the market? And you then look across to Europe and you see a company like Adyen, who's built a $50 billion company at the same time as Stripe. And it's clearly there's room for more. So those are some of the misconceptions that I don't think are around as much anymore. People clearly understand the bottoms up in terms of giving access to more financial tools to people. They understand that payments infrastructure is a huge market and most people are moving in the direction of instant money transfer. It's just really good to do that. And you know, I'm not a VC myself, but I think your education in the market and obviously other folks working to educate the VC market that they were missing the opportunity on real-time payments really led to some breakthroughs, primarily because none of them missed the 15-minute food delivery startup. We seem to have a lot of those companies out there. So I think, I, I think yeah. we owe that to you as well. Yeah. Yeah. They imported their understanding from payments where they missed the boat over to grocery delivery. Absolutely. Instant instant delivery. They're like, like yeah, yeah. I missed Stripe. I've got to get in on the 15-minute food delivery <laughs> window. All right. More more seriously. Okay. So th- th- this is great to hear this kind of background, especially for folks who are starting a company now. They know it's a long slog, but they may not have peaked around these corners. Tell us more. So you've raised funds. Balance obviously has a great team. We'd love to know more about kind of your journey to scale. So like today, my view is that companies getting started, it's a lot easier. You can plug into various APIs. You don't have to do as much thinking about funds flows and money transmission or things like that because you have companies. In the past, it would have been balanced. Right now, it's Stripe and others that can take care of those things for you. But take us back. Take listeners back to that time period because I think it really is magical in payments innovation land. What was it like for you guys to build balance back then, back before you had all these APIs and other service providers? It was a lot of fun. It was hard. But it's funny because you ask these questions and I'm like, oh, yeah, I'm not that old. But 
we were starting... We're not that old. We're not that old. <laughs> we're not that old. Yeah. We were starting Balance before it was like an obvious foregone conclusion that you would use web services. So I remember definitely through YC, where I think we got some of those free credits to use AWS. But my co-founders were both computer science majors in college and were just on some of the cutting edge of web services that were coming out. But this was 2010. And there were a lot of businesses, especially Wall Street, where like CTO Matt Mahmood, he was working at Wachovia Securities, where they were doing high frequency trading. They were racking their own servers. And so he saw that and... It was very clear we weren't going to rack servers in our living room or in Palo Alto. So we went all in on web services on the first end, like beginning. On the payment side, it was very different. There weren't really APIs or if they said that they were not up to even modern yeah. standards at that point. But we, we used Stripe. We were, I think we were probably one of the first hundred customers of Stripe. They were called dev slash payments. Didn't have what we needed. I remember getting like 80 page PDF specs from some of the bigger processors and banks and working through those. It was slim pickings. It was not clear how to build it. So as a result, we built a lot of the, not only the integrations, but some of the internal services ourselves so that we could build on top of them to create whatever experience we wanted with our API. It's just so funny that you mentioned racking your own services. I remember I, that's what I experienced when I moved out here to work at Square in 2014. And so I get to Stripe and I just kind of made, I never asked. I read all about the open email culture and everything, but I didn't read enough about their server setup. So I didn't realize they were all just cloud-based. And I think I went yeah. three months without realizing everything was on Amazon. And when it did, I had this moment where I was like, oh my God, is that safe? Did I make a big mistake leaving Square to come to Stripe? And then you realize, no, this is like the future and you get over it on it. But it was funny. Every lawyer yeah. that joined after me, I think had the same like month lag, didn't realize there were no rack servers. And they were like, where's our data center? We're like with Amazon. And it was just really funny. Yeah, it, like but look, the funny thing now is it's clear that you could pay Amazon to provide a lot more and better security for yeah. your data than you could provide as an individual company. Unless you're a massive company like Facebook, maybe you have a chance. But yeah, it's only been a decade, really. And now, obviously, you're going to use AWS or whatever web services you want. Yeah, absolutely. I would love to hear more about finding a processor and that whole experience feels like the biggest chicken and egg thing for payments companies. Like you need, at the time you need to work with a bank like Wells Fargo, JP Morgan, but they probably wouldn't talk to you until you're big and had your own team and controls and everything yep. set up. So how did balance deal with that cold start problem? Yeah, it was difficult because we were getting like market signal and growth. So we were starting to have real customers and real volume, but we were too small to be underwritten by a large payment processor. So we had to do this, the resourceful scrappy startup thing, which is, just find a way to make it go forward and deal with the next problem as you get there. Specifically, we set up a series of merchant accounts through various ISOs and we process payments on those. And so it was like buying t-shirts and say we had a t-shirt company. That's what the balance was in yeah. a hypothetical story. And we were screen printing them, but we were getting our inventory from like Costco. So yes, you're getting some discount, but we're really just marking up something that's already been marked up. We needed to go wholesale. We needed to go straight to the processors and the banks. And so specifically, we would prototype things on, say, you know, an early day Stripe or PayPal or one of these ISO merchant accounts we got. And then as we saw that we were getting volume or usage on it, we would move it on to another ISO merchant account. And from there, we would we actually set up like a fake website for selling pound cakes. And this allowed us to process payments. The company's name was Pound Pay at the time. So we were selling pound cakes and that was the cover. But it allowed us to scale through various merchant accounts until we had enough volume to be signed by Chase Payment Tech. And I believe that was our first processor. It was other than Wells Fargo, but pretty sure Chase. And at the time, 
the PayFAC payment facilitator model wasn't, it existed, but it wasn't in wide deployment. So for every aggregator, as they were called, that um, Chase had on their servers or on their uh, payment stack, so for example, Square, Chase would have to go out and visit and do like a site visit to do risk assessment. So I remember having the chief risk officer of payment tech come to the balance office, which was on in Soma. Our floor that we were on across the hallway was a medical cannabis shop. And it just, it didn't scream buttoned up payments company, but we had to do it. And I actually remember like actually putting on the the access control doors with the key fobs and everything so that we could say we had like an entry system for part of our PCI underwriting. There was a lot of stuff like that. I'm kind of surprised we made it through, but so the simple answer to your question is we did whatever we needed to be scrappy. Eventually we, you know, got everything legit processed with eventually Chase Payment Tech, Wells Fargo, and then finally on Vantive, which is now part of FIS. And then on ACH, we use Wells Fargo, Fifth Third Bank, and with Push to Card and some other things, we did Forte, which is a processor that's still around now. Really awesome. And it's funny because I think people forget about the large role Chase played in payments, especially over the last decade, where they were powering Square, PayPal, folks like you guys. Into it. it. Yeah, that's right. Back before you could go plug into Stripe or Braintree or something like that, if you wanted to plug payments in your startup, you'd go work with Chase. And they also had yep. a big and still do have a fairly big venture arm. And so for yep, startups exactly. out there looking around, Chase can be a great first start partner. Vantive as well, and obviously Wills. So we'd love to ask you, like one of my favorite things about Stripe, I joined early enough where we still kind of got to see the early customers. Some of them had reached huge scale, like Lyft and Shopify by the time I got there. But I remember one of the most fun things was working with these early customers. So we'd love to hear what was it like for you at Balance with your early customers and what shape did they take and what were some of the challenges that you faced with them? Yeah. So we started off focusing on marketplaces. If you go back to 2010, 2011, this was when Uber, Airbnb, uh, TaskRabbit, Etsy were first taking off. There was this huge explosion in every type of marketplace model possible, gig economy, collaborative economy, whatever you call it. So we focused mainly on marketplaces We ended up having a number of crowdfunding services. And then one thing which kind of actually led to some of the insights at Phoenix is vertical SaaS companies. So a software company that was doing our favorite example is this company that was based in Napa that did SaaS e-commerce like inventory and website building for vineyards. And then they added payments on top so you could actually transact through the website or so consumers could transact through the website. Yeah. Yeah. But some of the more notable companies, we had Reddit, they had a like a gift marketplace that they did every year and we powered payments for them. Square, Cash App, actually use our ACH API. Yeah. Thumbtack, one of their early experiments with payments they did with us in the early days. Vinted, which is a European-based secondhand resale marketplace. It was with us. TradeZ, Zarly. Do you guys remember the Fancy at all? No. I think they're still around. They had a partnership with Apple at one point. Got a fair amount of notoriety. But they were a, basically a marketplace where almost anything that you could see on a retailer's website, they had scraped, crawled, and made available on their marketplace. That's funny. And so we, they were one of our customers. But yeah, it was fun watching customers who were like, had, as you mentioned, like tiny scale. And then yeah. six months, two years later, you look back at them, you're like, wow, this is a very large company now. So we're seeing some of that at, at Phoenix. I saw it at Balance. It's, it's actually like a very cool experience. Yeah. Love it. Sounds like a fun time. Yeah. Great. I know something we see now is customers don't know how to evaluate various providers in the card issuing space. So they might go take talk with Stripe, Market on Lithic, and find that the Stripes of the world seem to be playing in the best space, whereas Lithic and others seem to be focused on modular card issuing. I imagine you saw something similar needing to help customers understand how the various payment models they could take when you were at Balance. What kind of customer education do you have to do? 
Yeah. So the biggest thing that we found is that customers would come to us for their hair on fire problem. Mm. So if they were say, we'll start a marketplace, we need card acceptance. And they might go get a solution that might be a traditional merchant account. That might be Stripe at, in, at the time, a brain tree, whatever it might be. And then they would be making manual payouts through PayPal or writing checks or something like that. Over time, they started to realize like, hey, we can't scale either for compliance reasons or for just manual operational reasons. We can't scale the payout tent. So we actually started positioning ourselves. We had the three things. We had processing, escrow, payouts. We started positioning the payouts piece first because we realized that that was the best way to meet the customers where they are. And then eventually we would sell them on the full stack, the full solution. Similarly, we would often find people would get cards in their mind first. And then we would sell them on bank payments and then cross sell them into cards. So part of our model was educating folks on the different payment types, the different payment models of a platform is not just accepting cards, it's also dispersing. And then just working with them over time to expand and further penetrate into their full payments volume. That's I think was the biggest misunderstanding. And then when one thing we did also is we started actually adding changes to our schema, our API schema, that would better allow platforms to link payment payments in and payouts. And so that's something they didn't even know that they wanted or needed because they were doing it manually. But at scale, obviously, it's a lot better to do with an API. And so we would provide some affordances for that, like a meta tag on every API resource, things like that. Huh, interesting. Yeah, I think that's something a lot of fintech struggle with, that yep. customer education and handholding piece. And kind of related, I think some fintechs also have to deal with educating regulators. And I know you were building balance during an interesting time period when the fintech industry was more advanced than regulators and the banks were at the time, kind of like what we're seeing with crypto now. Uh, my understanding is regulators had spates where they would play catch up and banks would also have these spates where they'd suddenly de-risk a bit. Uh, the, the main example that comes to mind is Operation Chokepoint, when yeah. the DOJ investigated banks and payment processors that did business with Uh, Certain types of companies that DOJ thought posed certain fraud or money laundering risks. And ultimately, the government functionally pressured financial industry to cut off access to certain financial services for these types of businesses they were worried about. So I'd be curious to hear about your experience interacting with regulators as you were growing uh, balanced. Yeah, we can talk more broadly, but about choke point, I actually think, Matt, you probably have more, or you, Reggie, have more insight into the specifics. Like I saw some of this come down through the acquirers. So a lot of the acquirers, like the Chase, the Wells Fargo, et cetera, Vantive, they got spooked by what was going on in the treasury department with choke point. And often there were questions like, is there payday lending? Is there not aggregation per se was in the sites, but there was a lack of visibility and granularity into some of the aggregated payments volume. And so when the processors would come up empty handed about who was the actual underlying recipient, I think that's one of the things that spurred on the development of the payment facilitator process. There was some collateral damage, though. Like As far as I heard, Chase actually went in and just kicked off a bunch of aggregators, except for the big ones like a Square or an Intuit. We were caught up in that, which is why I even know about Chokepoint. Yeah. I don't think the processors and the inquirers were in scope of Chokepoint per se, but there was definitely like some rattled cages where they decided to be more risk averse. So as you said, Reggie, they overcompensate or they might fall behind. This is definitely an area where they think they went a little bit too much. But yeah, Matt, I'm curious what you saw in private practice. Yeah. So it was interesting. I remember we had a partner who was representing uh, online lenders, basically payday lenders. And there was a big issue for them because one of the things choke points seem to be heavily impacting were payday loans. And Regardless of what you think of it, those products are lawful if you're offered with the right disclosures and consents and things like that and the right operational backend. 
And so I remember there was a big scramble around, is the government trying to use enforcement against the payment processors to choke, which I think is where then all the news articles came out to choke out this conduct that from a policy perspective, they don't like, but is lawful. And uh, it was interesting because as you dug into it, that wasn't that clear cut and dry. That's what was happening. And it was more about the processors that were there. And if people keep an eye on the FTC's enforcement actions, if our listeners do that, you'll, especially if you've been doing that for a couple of years, you'll see every now and then they come out with an action against some tiny payment processor that has facilitated a really big, they're looking for things like somebody took all of grandma's money and now she can't make her tax bill or her mortgage payment or her rent payment or something else like that. Those are the things they kind of look for. And unfortunately, there's a lot of fake businesses that are out there. And that's why, Joe, you saw this. I saw this at Square and Stripe, right? The payment facilitation side now, there's all these rules and structures and diligence that the banks help the networks do. And the whole industry mm-hmm. operates in concert to make sure you're not enabling the ripoff schemes. They're going to rip off grandma or the single parent or something else like that. But tiny processors, especially ACH processors, they don't make enough money. They never commercialized those types of controls on those things. And so what was happening was less around, hey, let's go get the payday lenders that are operating online. And it was, hey, here's this really seedy ACH processor that'll Mm -hmm. take everybody, including the payday lenders, because they were in the high-risk space. And it was something else happening by and large of those processors that that really tipped the government off. And so the government squeezed the processor and then uh, you mentioned earlier collateral damage, right? And we saw that with the payment platforms with Chase tightening, smaller payment platforms that didn't make the cut, collateral damage. Um, same thing on the ACH side. The payday lenders themselves were not expressly targets of this in most cases, right? It was really just this collateral damage of the tightening around the ACH processor. And so that really good springboard to say it's important to have good lawyers, important to engage with your trade groups, right? Especially if you're at scale where this is important to your business, your past product market fit, you have the revenue to spend in these type of efforts just to keep an ear to the ground and see what's happening. And the regulators, by the way, FDIC, OCC, FinCEN, et cetera, really great about engaging with the industry. So you've got a lot of great proactive channels that folks can take, listeners can take if they're interested. And the best lawyers will know about them. So go hire a good outside counsel because we are not giving legal advice on this podcast. For as much as there is collateral damage, I do think that helps spur on some of the innovation in platform payment technology. So Vantive in particular, definitely wasn't the first, but they got ahead of the curve for third bank with them on the for benefit of accounts, which we can talk about later. Dynamic payouts, a lot of start innovations around changing the soft descriptor. So what shows up on a credit card statement for yeah. a consumer's bank account or a bank statement. So there's things like that that actually helped both gain more granularity, but also in some ways created a better consumer experience or some merchant experience, which we now all take for granted today and use. Absolutely. All right. So we'd love to talk a little bit more. Obviously, Reggie and I are nerds in this space around regulations. So let's talk a little bit more because I think you guys had to deal with this. What happens when the regulators come knocking, especially if you're operating in payments? Because I think you have some really unique insights that listeners would benefit from here. Yeah. So we had state inquiry letters from states like Washington, Illinois, things like that. And one funny thing now, looking back, as like, so I was just talking about a form of benefit of or FBO accounts, is we would have to explain to these regulators what a for benefit of account was because they weren't just invented for payment facilitation or aggregation, but yeah. they were deployed in a new way. And then when you strap technology onto it, oftentimes regulators would get worried about things. But yeah, it's just funny. In hindsight, we would have to send these detailed flow fund diagrams, who our banking partner was, that like thumbs up this. And like who was getting the money and how. Yeah. And going back to them and saying, hey, you're worried about us doing, say, money transmission or other some other money service business activity. 
That's not the case. We don't touch the money. We have no custodianship over it. Our banking partner does fit third in this case. It's in the for benefit of everything is cool here. But I think it was not well known that you could do that. It wasn't just the assumption that you were doing that. And we ourselves were probably a little naive about how to interact with the regulators. But that was the initial thing was just we're moving money for platforms who have buyers and sellers and we're doing relatively novel funds flows to make it happen. And then, of course, strapping an API on top of it, putting developer docs on our website instead of sending PDFs out and have this bottoms up approach. And so some regulators became curious, let's say. Yeah, no, that makes a ton of sense. And I think very similar, I think what I saw both in private practice and then over at Square and Stripe and also lived with because we did a lot of money transmission exams Mm -hmm. in both those companies. It's just, it's really fascinating. And it's a good reminder of why it's important to shop around or at least talk to a couple different outside counsel if you're building something novel in fintech. Lawyers only know what they're fed. And especially Mm -hmm. if it's a law firm lawyer, somebody who's homegrown, been at the same firm for 10, 15, 20 years, they only really know the work they've done or if they've gone to industry conferences and had these types of conversations, not on podcasts, but informally over dinners and things, but that they get these insights. And so it was interesting going into Square because there was a lot of stuff we knew about payments on the legal team, but also a lot of stuff that we were encountering sometimes for the first time. And the mandate there was the same at Stripe, solve problems. And same at Lithic, by the way, that's how we operate as well. And it, we know you do as, as well at Phoenix. You guys are out to help customers solve hard problems on things. But it was absolutely fascinating. And I think we experienced the same thing where regulators sometimes didn't know what the FBO was. And so if you got really good counsel, especially really good outside counsel, if your in-house counsel didn't have that type of knowledge, and I did not at first around FBOs, that you could do it. Otherwise, it was interesting. There were some business executives that were hard charging to be like, just get the money transmission licenses. Not thinking yeah, about exactly, okay, exactly. Spin which, up a team. Which has its yeah. place. You can do both, yeah. but oftentimes it's just more straightforward and faster to do the FBO Absolutely. account and work with your acquirer. The interesting thing is, this problem doesn't go away, it just changes. So at Phoenix now, I've had conversations with, for Push a Card, for example, I won't name names, but with different yeah. banks, so not counsel, but risk or, or compliance officers, explaining to them that the push of money to a debit card is coming from a good funds account. And so the Visa and MasterCard operating procedures that define transactions settling to a, a merchant, in this case, going to a card on, for a consumer, are completely reversed. So you're not worried about some sort of chargeback scenario where it's going to come back. These are good funds from someone who is putting money into a pot to send out to end users. And it just breaks the existing written codified law or or rules in this case. And so it it takes some conversations to work that out and eventually people get on board. But yeah, it, it still exists today. Really good tip there. For our listeners, one thing to keep an eye out for is the CFPB has been reported to be working on some guidance around friendly fraud. Visa actually just released some chargeback rule updates if people are interested. If you work in that space, go take a look. And so it'll be interesting to see what the CFPB does around it. When you take the 30,000 foot policy level, it makes sense. You don't want somebody to be ripped off, but anybody who's worked in payments long enough, and Jarrell, we know you've definitely seen your fair share of these stories. We'll get to them at the end of the podcast. There's a lot of friendly fraud where people present that they've been ripped off, but they're actually in cahoots, which is my favorite legal term with somebody legal else term? working in the back. Of <laughs> I'm pretty sure I'll pull my Black's Law Dictionary after the podcast. Again, yeah. not legal advice, but my favorite legal term. I'll go find the page for it. Pretty sure it was on the bar. That's right. You define cahoots. I love it. Looking back, is there anything you think you'd do differently if you were to start a platform payments company now? I mentioned before, we were kind of naive. We were all engineers. We... It had stumbled into payments as a product that we were passionate about. But I think as a result, we didn't know 
a lot of what you should or should not do or who to talk to first. We ended up obviously becoming competent because we had to. We like were able to drive our chargeback rate down. We were able to get handle inquiries, able to sign up with three major banks. Like eventually we got it fixed. But I think in the beginning we were a bit intimidated slash unawares of how you deal with say regulator inquiries or a compliance officer asking certain questions. It's not a skill that you learn in college or you know, my, my first job, I was writing web scrapers at an e-commerce company. I didn't understand that. So it, just in, in general, like being a bit more open to diving in to the industry earlier versus trying to just completely ignore it. That's the main thing. And then having the one thing that I think we did do well, which I would recommend to others is we ended up being forced to build really modular and extensible infrastructure and then eventually partnerships so that we could move between different providers and partners who would say yes to a certain funds flow or to a certain MCC or whatever it might be. That allowed us to be very agile in terms of not stepping over any lines because we worked with a partner or an underwriter or a bank or a processor who said yes to a certain model. And so there's some complexity in that, both operationally and techn- like technically, but it's manageable. And I think because we were, again, we were engineers, we thought of that first. And then eventually that actually turned out to be very beneficial for things like PCI compliance or moving processors or things like that. It's really great to hear those insights, especially for folks who are early, either pre-product market fit or just found product market fit, because it's really important advice. All right. So... We've touched a little bit on this. We talked about Operation Chokehold. You mentioned a couple of the early days things, finding the dog, very important early on. But we know <laughs> payments veterans, especially you, because you've done a, a couple of tours of duty here through the financial system, have some really great stories. And so we'd love to hear about some of those. Tell us more about the headaches you ran into helping folks move money. Like what was breaking yeah. and scaling as that was going on? So, some of the stuff is boring. It's like, oh, we missed something in reconciliation or our ledger and we create a new, like I said, yeah. we create a new yeah, schema yeah. or version. But some of the fun ones were around fraud. So if you have a $25,000 credit card transaction run through your system, it's fraud, right? There's no way someone's going to buy something for $25,000 on a card. So we worked with the marketplace where we saw this come through we at some point like re- refund the transaction. It, it tr- triggers our fraud detectors. And then we get like a panic call from the head of ops at our customer who's like, Hey man, I just got a call from this woman who is in the Royal family of, I think it was the UAE. And she wants to know why her card was declined. And we just had to realize there's, that was actually a valid transaction. And we kept getting these. I think this woman in particular spent, I don't know, hundreds of thousands of dollars in this way. And so it just, I don't know, I never spent $25,000 on a single thing except for maybe a house or a car. But it's that was fun because it just obviously seemed like fraud and we just, we were wrong. On the flip yeah. side, we would do a micro deposit validation. So again, before Plaid was really at scale, where you can verify your bank account using your bank login, we were doing yeah. micro deposits where you put a few cents into account and you tell us what those cents are. This is something we just didn't even think to like put any thought into to detecting fraud, but we ended up having someone essentially siphon, I think it was like $400 over the course of three months by just repeatedly, yeah. I think they probably wrote a script, but repeatedly creating bank accounts, registering them for micro deposits. And then we even talked about this internally, like we're, we're not going to return the ACH for a few cents. It's like it costs yeah. more to put the money there. So we're just, we're going to, we're a little, it'll stay there. So they would just harvest three cents, eight cents, two cents, oh seven cents for months. And eventually we detected it and, oh, we just, <laughs> this account was doing something really weird. So again, it was something yeah. where 
I've from then on, I never underestimate like the incentive someone has to defraud you if there's any amount of money available. I'm trying to think of other ones. Crypto was booming at one point during this during balance, and we kicked off all the crypto exchanges and the platforms. But there's one that was like cleverly disguised as like a contracts marketplace. I didn't know what it was. We let it go for a bit, and I remember having to call this guy and explaining to him that he lost forty thousand dollars because an ACH transfer had come in. He was effectively a node on the Ripple network. Mm. And so there's an IOU token essentially that goes to somewhere else. Oh. Someone's able to exchange through another node, get their cash, and then they yeah. file an affidavit with their mm. bank saying, I didn't register that deposit. And so now the money's out yeah. both ways and this customer was responsible for it. Huh. So that was a tough call. And then the last fun yeah. one, maybe Matt, your former employer is involved in this a bit, but we used to run, yeah, we used to run a Stripe. We used to run a balance as an open company. So what this means is we did... Yeah, product development and a lot of open conversations with our customers on GitHub yeah. issues. And one of the things that would come up was push to card. So this is why we created it because customers asked for it. We did our whole, this is the spec. This is the design of the dashboard. This is the pricing. This is our launch date, et cetera. Yeah. And one of the downsides of an open company is that competitors are watching this. And so on the day that we were yeah. supposed to launch, I remember Stripe launched the same thing with what appeared to be like a somewhat hacked together version using unreferenced refunds. And so it was just a bummer. We got into a kind of like yeah. a hacker news spat with them, but it was, it was all in good fun. So those are the war stories that come to mind that are just kind of interesting, colorful. Yeah. That last one's really fascinating because I mean, who knows what was malicious and what wasn't. You'll, you'll never get the straight story out of Stripe, what was happening inside. I don't think I was there at the time. So, so they, they, it wasn't like they did anything illegal. Yeah. They just... just Launched yeah. the same feature, same yeah, day. yeah, high, highly coincidental. The interesting thing will be to see because Move's operating in that way now. I, like I, I'm in, I don't have much time to read it anymore. But all the folks at Move are really fantastic. We're excited. Lithic speaking at FinTech DevCon coming oh, cool. up. We have one of our great the folks from our Revenue Team going to talk about how we build products and work with customers, and that's a really fantastic event. If folks don't know about it yet, the interesting thing is they do so much in the open. And if you're in that Slack channel, you can go peek in. What are people up to? What are, yeah. what are the hard problems are they solving that are there? And I know at, on the Lithic side, we're not malicious about it, right? Like we don't have anybody in there. Like, oh, what's move up to kind of thing. We're cheering from them from the side. We think yeah. what they're building is really fantastic, but it'll be interesting to see, can they sustain that right long term? Yeah. If yeah. someone does take a malicious tactic to it, or do they close ranks at some point with the channel, which would be unfortunate because it is fun to have the opportunity to peek yeah. in. Yeah, it's good to have that kind of collaboration and openness yeah. in the, in the yeah. community. I've got a few more questions. First up, if you had to articulate balance legacy, what would it be? The biggest one is the concept of doing a white label merchant onboarding as a payback just didn't exist before. So even Stripe Connect, which they released to compete with Balance, I think 2012, 2013, the first version of it was they just send your merchant to a Stripe dashboard to sign up for an account. So yep. it, it wasn't white label. It wasn't fully embedded. So that's, I think, definitely something that is now at scale. There are various providers and companies doing that experience. And so we, we were one of the first to figure out how to do that via API not as the actual platform, so as the provider for the platform. A few other things. This is very specific and technical, but we added an item potency parameter to our API call, specifically for transaction processing. Very important. Very important yeah, now it, for API providers to have this. Yeah. And so funny enough, we actually pushed that to production at the request of Square's Cash App team who wanted to make sure they weren't multiply pinging our same endpoint to send ACH transaction. And now that's yeah. just, just a, it, every payments provider does it. Braintree, probably Bluevine, Stripe, Square, everyone in it to the point where it's going to be adopted as I think a Web3 
not a web three. Oh, I can see that. A web, yeah. a web standard. Yeah, yeah. The, so that, um, that was cool. Internet consortium for yeah, exactly. And all thank you, that. thank you. Yeah. Not web. Yeah. I have web, web three on the brain. It is something. It's like WC three. I think. Yeah, I think exactly. Google exactly. has a big hand in running it because they they have some folks with some time to help. Exactly. Which is so, cool. yeah, we did a partnership with GroupMe back in the day where we were doing in message payments, which obviously now is like yeah. WhatsApp, Facebook, Messenger. All that stuff has that. So that was cool. And again, these are all things that we just did early. Who knows? if they were going to happen eventually or not. And then the other thing, oh, PCI architecture. So actually, shout out to my CTO and co-founder, Mahmood. He actually came up with this very yeah. novel PCI architecture where we narrowed the scope to just one one subset of our architecture that actually had to have tokens and everything, or that actually had to have raw card numbers. Everything else uses tokens. And so he's actually started a company, raised money from Andreessen and Horowitz and everyone for that business. So bunch of stuff like that is still out in the wild. So it's cool to see now platforms obviously yeah. are a huge engine for the economy. And that's what we focus at on at Phoenix. And we think it's going to be one of the big drivers of the next couple decades. Love it. Those are all, all great legacies to, to have. Even if you're not the first, still something to say you were one of yeah. the folks at the helm kind of figuring that stuff out. would love to fast forward to today a bit. Tell us more about Phoenix. What does a typical customer and use case look like? And what's generally going on with the company nowadays? Yeah, so like I mentioned this Phoenix like balanced is focused on platforms. We moved away from marketplaces, which kind of was a very specific thing to 2010, 2011, but platforms. So it's, it could be vertical SaaS, it could be marketplaces, it could be e-commerce platform. Anyone who's moving money between one party and another, that's what Phoenix provides payments technology for. So we are working with startups that are doing $0 transaction volume all the way to publicly traded companies doing over a billion and we provide an API dashboard to move money. The So you said, what's going on with us now? Updates. We're doing billions of dollars in volume. I think we recently shared in May that we actually doubled our transaction volume from 2020 to 2021, which is huge because I think we had quadrupled from 2019 to 2020. Nice. So yeah. 2020 was obviously a massive year for e-commerce and, and that growth. And another fun stat, because I think this is some of the impact we have, like I said, in the economic engine of the future. Through the platforms we support, we're now settling funds to over 12,000 active sub-merchants. So it could be wow. small businesses, restaurants, gyms, places of worship, on and on. So I think that's a really cool stat that I like to personally track. Nice. We're so glad that you guys are doing well. There's so much space in the payment space. Take a look at the numbers and what still I think less than 20% of commerce is happening online. And so you think about all the things that a company like Phoenix can help, and there's still so much more to go. Like, I don't carry cash anymore. And yeah. so far, it's worked out okay. The only time I get hung up is at the softball snack stand when my daughter's having games. But season just ended last night. So I don't have to worry about <laughs> so cash again for another year. I'm good for a year. Yeah, and no, it's really funny. But it's just fascinating to see all that. And so it's great to have so many great providers. And Phoenix is certainly one of them out there. We, uh, and so we we're, we're, fans, we're fans of what you guys are doing. Yeah. We're fans of what you guys are doing on the issuing side. It's not something that we Thank play you. in, but it's nice to see... Yeah developer first yeah. platform for issuing. It's great. Yeah. And that's why understanding if you're out there and you're looking for these solutions, understanding what you need, what are your jobs to be done and which providers can best help fit those jobs is really critical because the, a lot of companies look the same from their website, especially the landing page, but what they offer and how they can help you get those jobs done is really different. Like Lithic, for example, we can be highly modular, which some people really value. Obviously, Phoenix has a lot of great attributes that set it apart from some of the other providers in the space. And so we encourage folks to check it out if you're looking for services from, from Phoenix. We have some internet questions. Do you guys want to turn to those? Yeah, let's do it. Okay. Do we know who asked the mysteries of PCI compliance? It's such a good question. 
I believe it's a Twitter account. I am. Oh, Bexel. Yeah, I know, I know, I know those guys. On there's Twitter, two guys, there's two guys behind it. Asks us, what are the mysteries of PCI compliance? And this is actually really fantastic because I think we've each seen pieces of this now. Drew, do you want to kick us off on this? Mysteries. I'm trying to think through the lens of who. Yeah, so I guess I'll go into some of this like question that came up during for the legacy of yeah. balance. But like one of the first things we realized at balance is that the default assumption is that you have to have your entire system locked down for PCI, which makes it really difficult to do things, give access to anyone in the company, because there's only a certain group of people who should have access to PCI sensitive environments. And so I would say one of the mysteries or kind of misunderstandings is you actually don't need the card number for that much. So there's use cases where you might want part of the card number. So like the last four or the first six, for customer support or to look up what the processing rates might be for a card, you can actually do that PCI in a PCI compliant way. The use cases where you actually need the full 16 digit PAN are usually to send it out and transact with a network or a banking partner. So the biggest uh, tweak I would put on people's understanding of PCI is like interrogate where you actually need that full card number and then limit the scope as much as possible to some environment that can store the full 16 and then use the either limited parts, the last four for six, or a token everywhere else. So again, this is kind of talking to our own book because this is what we did at Balance, yeah. but I haven't seen a better PCI architecture or model since then in the last 10 years because it, it complies with all the use cases for customer experience, Yeah, complies with the PCI data security standard, and they're we have the technology to do this. It's called a reverse proxy. It's called a secure vault. Yeah. You have all of that stuff. I'm curious your guys' takes. Yeah, I'm, I'll probably approach it from the builder side. So I think if, if you're a founder, you're listening, or you're an early team and you're listening and you have to worry about this today, I would say definitely go explore some of the solutions like very good security that are out there. Talk to your payments provider. The one Basis that you're theory actually hooking is a new up one and too. Running things through. That's right. Yeah, yeah. Because some of the companies will offer you tokenization and vaulting solutions, which is what Joe was just referencing. They're super helpful. Otherwise, as I've seen now how PCI compliance is run at a couple different companies, you have to effectively staff a small team to get you up and running. And that team goes away in that they're fully absorbed by your PCI audit once a year. And it's usually a couple of months worth of time. And so if you don't have to spend those resources when you're small and you can leverage a very good security or someone else like that, I'd say explore it. I have not used them, but I have helped teams through PCI audits, usually helping prepare paperwork or they have questions around what's in scope or out of scope and what they need to disclose to the auditors. So I've seen enough of this. You know what it is. The other thing that may surprise people that are new to the space, PCI is pass-fail, but not in the way I got through law school. It's pass-fail in that you get it all right or you're wrong. And so one screw-up on PCI will cause you to flunk your PCI audit and there, or you'll have to go in and fix it. And as we all know, because we've all worked in technology long enough, and our listeners certainly know, it's not like there's some magic switch you flip right to do it. Somebody has to likely go touch code or you've got to re-architect the way systems interact with each other, which takes time. So if you fall out of PCI compliance for something like that, it can be a really big headache. And that's why I think for folks who can go explore a provider, I think what AWS and Google Cloud and Azure can do today for folks, these providers can potentially do for you in the PCI space. And like any payment provider that generally is helping you touch card rails can also help you tokenize or provide solutions to help you be compliant, understand how those fit into your PCI compliance needs as well. 
Matt, you made me think of one more. One thing people yeah. don't understand about a PCI audit <clears throat> is that often that results in a human being sitting in a room in your office for days to weeks. So you mentioned like they absorb the attention of your whole team. It's also yeah. like just, mo- mo- that doesn't happen for most technology companies that you have a third party auditor who just sits in usually a windowless conference room and yep. like looks at logs and things like that. So it's a strange yeah. thing. No, that's absolutely right. We got another good question from one of our favorite Twitter lawyers, Jonathan Joshua, which is how should a payments company diligence its clients? I know we're happy to share a couple of high level things we do on the Lithic side. Many of our customers have come through the process of experiencing this. We hope it hasn't been too much of a hassle for you all. Drew, we're also curious, how do you all think about this at Phoenix? Is the client safe enough to work with? I think we had another question that was like, how do you balance the innovation and the risk? And I think they'll all merge those two together because it's not just innovation, but it's also growth. And the biggest kind of failure mode that I've seen is that folks will be too binary slash they'll conflate a lot of the different risk vectors. So if you are just looking at it by, does this present any risk, like binary, yes, no, then you're like, you're going to be overly conservative to the point where you won't one build the innovative, like products or tools that you need to support them. And then two, you actually won't experience the growth that customer might bring to you. So maybe a controversial opinion, but I think when you're diligent in customer, if the, on a portfolio basis, if the answer is that you're going to have zero risk, I personally being spending most of my time in marketing growth would be very concerned about that because there's not enough value in that customer in terms of the upside to justify yeah reducing risk to zero. So I think that's my first tweak is it has to be kind of a one of portfolio approach where you're assessing risk over a group of people or cohort. And then two, it has to be balanced both on risk and revenue or growth opportunity or whatever it might be on the plus side. And too often I see folks say, this is something that could get us in trouble with compliance or could get us in trouble with risk or financial loss, whatever it is at all. And so we're going to shut it down. I don't think that's an appropriate answer. The second one is there's different types of risk, right? So if it's financial risk, and this is why I think they're linked. It's like, you might say, because they're going to bring us X revenue on a, again, portfolio basis, we'll say yes to that financial risk. Then there's compliance risk, which could be binary and say, if we step afoul of this rule, we get shut down, our business is gone. That might not be a good risk to take. And so disentangling those is actually probably more useful than having a binary approach to things. I think that makes so much sense. I'll add another dimension to it, which I think is interesting or for folks to chew on. Because if you just take what Drew said now, it's it's really good insights. But if you apply it to the wrong business model, you might find that your business partners Mm -hmm. are going to get rightfully upset with you. I think the other thing is velocity to using the product. And it's funny, we work with this great guy, Gil Rosenthal, who Reggie and I know from Bluevine. And now Gil is out there consulting. So if you're a smaller startup and you need help in the risk space, we can help connect you with Gil. He's absolutely fantastic. Gil... Gil runs like a risk session and he talks about, are you a carnival model where you pay per ride, right? Or per ticket, or are you a theme park like Disney where there's a really expensive entry point and then you come in? I think something like Lithic, right? You can't just launch a card product instantly. There's too many laws and rules around it. We're working at creating some safe spaces for that and we'll continue to chip at that. But by and large, if you're going to do a consumer card product, let's say in crypto, you're touching a couple of very heavily regulated areas and areas that also partners want to see some thoughtfulness around. So that's an interesting thing where we can do things like we do background check. We will look for negative news right around stuff like that. And we have the time to do that because you're not rushing to get live tomorrow in your product. I think the flip of that, I think about Square. 
where you can walk into Target or Staples and I think still buy a square reader. I'm old, so I used to, used to be able to do that. And that's how my mom actually got her first square reader. She used to sell things at the craft fairs and take a square reader with her. Was you just go in and buy it and you don't care if my mom doesn't, right? If she's been arrested for something or anything else like that. Because at the end of the day, if she can pass KYC up to the bank standards, if she's not a known fraudster, according to her fraud and risk models, you can give her the and You can do some other things on payment processing, like you can slow down when you pay her if anything looks funny on that end to help protect yourself and protect the network as a whole. So that's an interesting model where you wouldn't clobber my mom selling tooth fairy pillows at the craft fair, but you might dig a little deeper on somebody standing up platform mm-hmm. payment, right? Or issuing or something else like that. So that's another thing I'll toss out to folks. And then in terms of the other kind of details, we look at the normal stuff. We look at what's your financial health. We get a sense of what your business plan is or what you're looking for and things like that. And that's how we look to control risks. And each way we're kind of looking to see, is there something funny or fishy right around it? Or is there a problem with the founding team? Again, negative news, background checks for arrests or other things like that, bankruptcies that may come up. So that way we can understand kind of what's going on. One tip, if you have a common name and you have a name twin out there that is bankrupt and constantly getting arrested and other things like that, Come prepped with your provider. Because like, for example, if somebody showed up at Lithic and we had a name twin issue recently on something like this, if you know about that in advance and you tell us up front, this is somebody else, this is why I'm different. It helps us spot that out of the gate. And then we or any other provider can move faster. So if you find yourself getting blocked on stuff and you're not sure why, that might be something that's out there. And then there is the reputational risk. And we talked to our bank. I'm sure you guys talk mm-hmm. to your outside partners as well fairly regularly to get that. I, I thought you were going to recommend um, folks change their name if they run into that issue. You, I'm pretty sure that's why Meatloaf changed his name. I think the old one, just they wouldn't let him play venues and things. Rest in peace, Meatloaf. Lo- he would do anything for love, just not that. <laughs> All right. So I have a question for you guys. I know you're supposed to be asking me the questions, but I actually, um, I'm curious to get your take on this, given you're building a payments business on the other yeah. side of the stack. So I'm curious if we can compare notes. If you're building a payments company today, and you don't have to speak to Lithic specifically, just generally, hypothetically, like... What strategy would you use to approach that? Can you say more and give a little more color on what you mean by strategy? So let me break this down. So I think there's, as I look on the acquiring side, there are a couple different flavors of how processors are essentially approaching the market. So you have someone like Adyen, who is almost religious about not acquiring any company, building everything in-house, soup to nuts, right? On the other end of the spectrum, you have the legacy providers, the Pfizer, the FIS, who are essentially a collection of acquisitions over the last few decades. And then somewhere in the middle, you'd have a Stripe, who seems to do this partner first to enter a market or a new functionality. And then they will essentially build it themselves and go as far to the metal as they can. So example would be they entered Europe, wrapping Valator, which is an acquirer that was from Iceland. And then now they are registered as an acquirer in the EU. So just generally, what is your take on the trade-offs of how you would approach building something, maybe on the issuing side or maybe not in this space? Yeah, and this is a really interesting question. I think, again, it's great to think multidimensional. And so you teased out a couple of good strategies. I'd say it depends on scale. If you're a founder, you don't have a product yet. You're just trying to figure out, I want to do something in payments. I want to bring my domain knowledge to it. Or I think it's a hard set of problems. I want to try and solve a piece of it. I'd say focus on things people aren't doing well or aren't serving the market today. I think that was the genesis of Lithic. Mm. We went out, we were not happy with our issuer processor for privacy.com. We kicked the tires on a lot of different solutions, companies we now compete with, and they could not meet the very unique needs we had for privacy.com. And we said, somebody internally said, hey, if we go talk to these companies, we could do this ourselves if we line up these the right set of partners and build the right backend systems. And that's how we got started down that path. 
And I think that's one of the things that focuses us. We keep looking at how is the market not served? How can we bring our knowledge, stability? Our technology is pretty good, but it gets better every day. And I think that's something you look at. You look at companies like Alloy, Hummingbird, Unit 21 mm-hmm. Persona, and others. They're doing that in the identity space. Really critical need to get started in anything in payments or fintech. And they're helping take that modular piece and do it really, really well. Now, let's say you've got scale. So now you're really big. I got to operate in this space from Square and Stripe. It sounds like at Phoenix, you guys are there right as well, which is really fun. Now you can say, hey, we've solved a really hard problem once. Where can you do it again? And either you can be pulled by customers, you can hunt a market and say, here's a market that isn't working well. A bunch of providers, they're overcharging customers. The economics are flipped. We can do it cheaper, more efficient, more modern, and capture the same margins by doing it this way. And I think then you can start to do and expand. And that's where I think that's where we were joking earlier about Stripe launching a similar product to you guys on the same day. That's where I think some of the consternation Mm. comes in because... You get so big and you're playing in all these, you're placing a lot of bets that eventually you can have a hand in every pot. Yeah, it looks like you're competing with everybody, but really what you're doing is you're serving customers. They want that supermarket. Yep. It's like the super Walmarts. I could buy a toy, I could buy a swimsuit, and I can buy milk and cookies. Yeah, anything right? you could possibly need. Or if I want, that's right. Whereas if I want really good cookies, I go to my local bakery. That's all they sell. We call that the SUV effect, where it's like, I'm going to buy yeah. this car because someday I'm going to go off-roading. And so I need all this suspension, four-wheel drive, and like 90% of the time you're driving it to Whole Foods and then back. That's it. But you could use that if you want. Yeah. So. Oh. Uh, Reggie, how about you? Any other thoughts on this? Because I know you, you wrote a really great piece for somebody's newsletter on this. Who's going to build the next payment network? Oh, cool. Yeah. No, I think you you hit the key thoughts I had, Matt. I think it's, there's these questions some kind of fundamental questions around making sure you're you're checking all the boxes of who do you need to actually support. I think the big framework that I have in my head is if you want to build a payments company, like a kind of network type company, you should think about like consumers, you should think about businesses, you should think about in-person payments and online. And I think each there, you can think of four quadrants like that, like a two by two grid and each quadrant has its own like unique considerations that kind of depends on what your company's strengths are at the time that you could use as the best wedge. So varies by a company use case. I appreciate you guys being good sports about this. I just, I think about payment model strategy and also some of the nitty gritty. And so it's it's always fun to talk to folks who are in the same space, but from a different perspective. So I appreciate the thoughts. Absolutely. Absolutely. All right. That's all I got for you. Any last ones for me? What's your favorite kind of cake? Pie. Nice. I have fond memories of my mom making me apple pie as a kid. That quick funny story is that (laughs) as an adult, I didn't realize you could just go and buy pie from the store. It just was a foreign concept to me. So I remember I was like working at a company. My coworker was like, if if you're jonesing for some pie, you just go to the store and buy some. And it like dawned on me like a revelation that I could spend 12 bucks on a pie and eat it that night. But because that childhood memory is imprinted so strongly. So that's why I say pie. That's funny. Yeah. That's really good. Love it. All right. Thank you guys so much. This is a lot of fun. Yeah. Thanks for joining us today. This was great. We'd love to have you back. So let us know when, when you want to come back on the podcast. Love, love to be a repeat guest. Yeah, that'd be, that'd be great. Thanks for joining us on the FinTech Layer Cake podcast. We hope you learned something useful today. FinTech Layer Cake is sponsored by Lithic, the fastest and most flexible way to launch a card program. If you're hungry for more content about FinTech, regulation, compliance, cards, and payments, we have all kinds of information on our website, from light snacks to full course meals and cake. Check the other episodes of the FinTech Layer Cake podcast on all streaming platforms today. 